Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with a longtime friend. His name is Connor Skelly. Connor, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, Alex. Thanks for having me on again. Um, I'm Connor. Uh, I'm a uh, marketing operations and CRM manager and consultant. Tell us about CRM today. What are the hot technologies that are doing CRM? Sure. I mean, it's funny that you immediately go to technology because it's also just a, a business concept at its core um, of customer relationship management. Um, but it's it's usually talked about in the context of a technology. Um, I'd say HubSpot is definitely one of the big ones. Salesforce is the big name that people know. Um, you know, there's a million others out there. There's like Zoho and Go High Level and Pipe Drive and Close. There's there's so many. Before we continue, here's a quick word from our sponsor, Adverity. Marketing is a thankless task. You go through all the trouble of setting up your campaigns, perfecting your messaging, and targeting your customers. But when it comes to revenue, who gets all the credit? That's right, sales. Well, it doesn't need to be this way. Adverity is the marketing data analytics platform that lets you easily monitor performance and link it to actual revenue in your company. What's more, The Advanced Analytics module will also give you predictive insights into how best to adjust your campaign spend based on the best ROI. Go to info.adverity.com slash MXA for a free demo. Again, that's info.adverity.com slash MXA for a free demo. And now, back to the podcast. Why is the space so cluttered, Connor? Is it easy? to do um i mean every every crm has its overlaps but each one also has their own unique positionings and functionality i mean i think it's with any technology at some point it, you get so many players uh in the space and then they begin gobbling each other up um so i think we're in you know the last couple of years i think there's been more of an innovation space for innovation time in crm um yeah if you were to look out into the future what kind of innovations do you think we will see in CRM? Um, probably at least like what most people expect to see in marketing technology just overall. Like, I mean, AI is obviously the big one that that people hang on to. Um, I think making more like AI-driven insights stuff and that are like contextual to your business, making that more cost-effective and powerful. Because, um, you know, you're really only going to get that paying like top dollar for a lot of the larger crms so yeah just like better yeah i'd like to see a crm that you know has has the native automation and like custom reporting be part of like the basic plan you know that that tends to be more of the higher tier premium stuff that you'll see do you think that we'll get to a point where you'll put on your apple uh, Apple glasses when they come out and you'll walk into a networking event and it'll just scan people's faces and tell you about them. Um, I mean, that technology exists now, right? Um, the glasses have to look good for me to wear them, but, uh, I don't know. I, I think, I think that that can exist today and people can use that today, but it kind of 
just comes down to like, you don't want to, if you're at a networking event, you don't need to network with every single person. And if the goal is to get those types of those people in your CRM, you know, you're not going to want to bring every single person in there because that's just clutter in your CRM. So you want to make sure you're getting the right people in there. So yes and no. Connor, CRM is a very profitable function to offer for marketing clients. Can you tell us about your your experience um, in and a little bit more about what you offer uh, in an independent way? Yeah, so um, I sell marketing and sales operation services or, you know, manage CRM services or CRM operations. There's a bunch of different keywords that fall underneath that. Um, but uh, it's really just finding companies that either don't have a dedicated marketing ops person or, uh, yeah, I mean, that you, you know, it's very common for companies to not have those, even ones that are, you know, starting to push 20, 30, $40 million in revenue. Um, for them to not have anyone solely focused on the supply chain of their marketing and sales teams. So, um, yeah, that's, I'll usually go in and, um, pitch them on something like that, whether it's better reporting, better automations, um, better pizza, Papa John's. Nice. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah. And usually just like unmessing up their system um, that they have because it's very easy for even just marketing teams to you know be going 100 miles an hour all the time um, and not realizing all of the clutter they're creating within their systems and you know at the end of the day all of that is a cost right whether it's time or actual dollars you know if you're not doing regular audits of your crm if you're not building scalable systems um, for your team you end up just wasting a ton of time and uh, just increasing the cost of running marketing in your business. What's the biggest problem that you solve when you're taking on a client? Uh, the the easiest one, the easiest one to identify is just like a, a messy database. So, does a company have? Do they have like segmented lists? If they don't, do they have the data foundation to allow those lists to get created? Uh, in a lot of cases, no. Um, you know, how many, how many of their contacts are really unengaged? How many have unsubscribed? How many have bounced and, and clearing all of those people out of your system. If you think about it, like a, uh, like a store, um, you know, they all have inventory, they have physical products on shelf and all of those things are cost. So your, every contact or every record in your CRM is just like that. It's, it's an inventory cost. And, uh, you know, in the case of something like HubSpot, uh, where you'll have contact limits, uh, depending on your tier, you, know, you could be spending a lot of extra money per month or per year uh, with just wasted contacts that even if you tried to send them an email, you couldn't because it bounces back or they haven't opened your last eight, eight emails and they're not going to anytime soon. So that, that's been a big narrative that I've been pushing a lot to clients is the every, you know, if you're, if the contact in your CRM doesn't serve you, then just get it out of there. If they want to come back and engage with you, then they will. There's no point in, in keeping them in there, which is a tough thing to get like non-marketers on board with because they're like obsessed with, oh, these people talked to us once. And so now they must stay here forever. Yeah, but that was two years ago. And, you know, they might not even be at the right company now, but you don't know because your CRM is garbage. So um, it's, uh, 
yeah, that, that, that tends to be like the number one thing to start off with. So I want to move on to another topic, Twitter. You're good at Twitter, Connor. Thanks. Tell us about it. I love Twitter. Twitter's great. It's a nightmare cesspool if you let it be just like any other social media. Uh, but Twitter is also a wonderful place filled with a lot of smart people who are just out there in the world sharing what they know and connecting with other people. Um, so that's that's the ideal format of a social media platform. I think Twitter does it well uh, if you find the right people. What about for marketing? How does Twitter oh, I work? think it's great. I mean, there's the like the marketing Twitter community is very much a thing. Uh, I think you know probably sometime during the pandemic, it it really accelerated into becoming a thing. Um, you know, like any community on social, there's a lot of clutter and a lot of noise of people just trying to hijack the space and promote their own thing. But any good community will weed those people out organically and. Um, it, yeah, it's filled with a lot of lost smart people um, that enjoy talking about marketing. How do you think Twitter will change after Elon buys it? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I'm I'm definitely on the train of I I think he understands the product and understands what it could be. Uh, I, I think he said in a Twitter town hall or something that it was it's very much like the town square. Um, of the of social media on the internet, um, you know, I I definitely agree that any sort of advertising advertising based revenue model is a breeding ground for uh, bad user experience and misaligned incentives. And yeah, I mean, I'm I'm optimistic. Hmm. Are you a fan of it? I know you're a fan of it. Um, yeah, I, I do think it's I do think it's a great social media platform. I, I wish I was better at it. It's uh, it doesn't come as naturally to me. Um, but uh, it, yeah, it's great. Speaking of uh, platforms that I like, I want to ask about LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. That's my favorite social media platform. Yes. Um, what do you think about marketing on LinkedIn? I, I think LinkedIn gets a bad rap. Um there's a lot of cringiness on LinkedIn, just like there's any cringiness on any social platform. But again, it's just, you can easily filter those people out, curate your feeds regularly. Um, I do like a quarterly audit of who I'm following and stuff on Twitter and LinkedIn and make sure that it's, it's serving me. Um, and I think a lot of people complain about what shows up on LinkedIn, but if they just unchecked a few boxes, they'd find that the good stuff tends to bubble to the top. Um, I mean, organic reach on LinkedIn is insane. If you're, if you have any sort of coherent thoughts about your field and you want to start building a following on, on LinkedIn, like turn on creator mode and just do it because the, the reach is, is great on there. Like you'll get posts, stay in the feed for up to like three weeks. So, um, yeah, I think, I think LinkedIn's great. Now for humor... If I want to inject humor, what's better, Twitter or LinkedIn? Uh, I mean, Twitter probably by default is better between those two. But I mean, who cares, right? Like, if as long as you're, it's as long as it's like somewhat work appropriate humor, I think that will very much fit well on LinkedIn. That's most of my like most of my posts on LinkedIn are about marketing operations and marketing in general and stuff like that. But usually when I comment on stuff, it's 
it's usually something funny, right? Cause I'll read something and I'll have like a funny quip or something like that. Um, cause that's, I mean, that's how you're going to grow a following is by doing those outbound comments. You're not just going to gain this huge following by only posting. You have to participate in the community. So, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think humor works. Uh, it just has to be, you know, like, like anything, like, like it, as if you were in real life, you, it has to be tasteful. You can't just like do some like terrible joke, um, and expect people to read through your text and cause people don't know you. Right. So they don't know what your intention is behind it or whatever, but also just don't, don't comment like an NPC, you know, don't be like, I agree on every post. Cause that, that is so beyond useless and you're not going to gain any following or make any real connections that way. Do you have any other tips for conducting yourself online? Um, conducting yourself. I mean, just, you know, the, the dumb tip of be authentic, right? Like be, be who you are because you're not going to get burnt out and being who you are on the internet. And eventually the people that like you for you will show up and yeah, that's, I'd say that's, that's definitely a big one. I mean, if you want to grow your audience on there, be consistent. Like consistency is the number one thing. I think when I was starting my new Twitter account in middle of July, I did like 700 tweets in like the two weeks of July. And that was my own organic tweets as well as replies and stuff. And, um, you know, I think I'm at like close to 400 followers now, like all completely organic and the engagement engagement rates are great. So yeah, just be consistent and, you know, you can all like the growth hacking kind of stuff of, um, tagging a million people in your posts, try to get visibility that works once, but if you keep doing it, people are going to notice and hate you for it. And you're just going to attract, like, you're not going to attract any real followers. You're just going to attract people that like to follow people. And that's not use- useful. You got to be yourself online, um, but you have to be palatable. How do you navigate that? Think of it like a like if you were in a, an actual room with these people. You know, if you wanted to, if every social circle that you saw in a room was welcoming, which I, I'd say it's safe to say you can assume that, um, especially if you're following people that are in your general niche and stuff, um, you know, be a be a human. Don't be, don't be some like mindless robot that's just commenting to get visibility or, or like liking a post commenting and then like DMing them and like pitching your service. That's not going to work unless your pitch is really good, but nine times out of 10, it's not going to work. Just, you know, be, be an actual person. How's it been going for you on LinkedIn? It's good. I think LinkedIn is one of those platforms that you get out what you put into it. So in times when I'm posting more, I get a lot more engagement. Um, And I've recently really been taking a step back and um, trying to focus on the other spheres in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it's been good. Yeah. It's been paying off. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a very direct correlation between the engagement you get and the amount that you post. That's just, that is true across all social platforms. Yeah, and you have a fancy measurement tool. Can you tell us about how you manage your analytics for social? Oh, yeah. Uh, so for LinkedIn, um, actually just downgraded my account because I'm trying to save a little money. But um, I use Shield, 
that is for your personal profile uh, analytics on LinkedIn. LinkedIn's not too great with your own profile. Like they're, they're pretty good with the business analytics, business page analytics, but personal profile, not so much, which is odd given that they launched this creator mode. And obviously people would want to see that. They recently, like last few months or something launched, like you could see analytics on individual posts, but you know, shield is great to like see the aggregate and see how it trends over time and what content is really performing. And you can, you can get really customized with how you tag posts and, and stuff like that. Uh, but for Twitter, I just use like the Twitter analytics. I'm not too diligent about it, but I use like, I'll use um, this app called hype fury to schedule posts and threads and stuff like that. Speaking of which, how do you determine the correct cadence of posting or emailing or, you know, any kind of frequency of ads online? Um, so, I mean, I would treat all three of those differently. So like social content, just the cadence is more. There is like, just post more. That's all it is. People obsess about the time in which they should post. It doesn't matter. The algorithms are built in such a way that most people are in the chronological feed, especially on Twitter. Most people are seeing the quote unquote best tweets. So just keep posting and they'll, they'll surface for email. That's a little bit different. I mean, if you're starting from zero, um, I mean, depending on what the email program is, but if it's just, you know, a simple drip campaign or something like that, like a top of funnel sort of drip campaign, like, once a week or once every other week could be okay, depending on the business. Um, but if you have, you know, hard data on the time of day in which most people open or, um, or the volume of emails until people start to get unengaged or unsubscribed, then you could change things based off of that. Um, for ads, ads is a bit different. Um, I'm, I'm not a paid media expert, but I've done it long enough and, um, I mean, ad frequency is a huge thing. So uh, if you're able to get, if you're working off of a decent sized audience, getting, you know, depending on what your goal is, you're getting three or four or five different pieces of creative in front of your, uh, in front of the audience could be the right, the right thing. Um, so yeah, just making sure that you're keeping the creative fresh and uh, um being able to tie, like obviously tying those clicks and stuff like that to conversions as best you can. How do you know when you're starting a side hustle, at what point do you start to pay for ads? Mm, I literally just started this. So um, the consulting business that I run is pretty high profit margin. Um, I think it's like 68% or something like that right now. So I have, I'm starting to keep some more money in the bank and I'm, I'm testing out LinkedIn ads right now um, just to see if I can drive traffic back to my site. So I'm running remarketing audiences off of, uh, I'm doing a bunch of cold email as well. So I'm taking like the, you know, thousands of companies that I'm using for cold email and then I'm creating remarketing lists in LinkedIn off of those companies and then segmenting down based on, you know, marketing, senior marketing people, that revenue, that type of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's going okay. I'm actually looking at it right now. Uh, it's going all right. Um, there's a lot of, 
there's a lot of like click fraud on all ad platforms. So I'm trying to keep it, keep the ad delivery just on LinkedIn versus their audience network. Cause like all the audience network people, it's like a hundred percent bounce rate. It's just useless. So I'll, I don't mind spending more per click if it's coming directly from LinkedIn and I could see that the actual web analytics are a bit more real. Can you talk about click fraud? What is that? Um, I mean, bots and things like that. So again, I'm not an expert on this, um, but from what I've seen, it's I've experienced it with LinkedIn. I've experienced it with Google ads. You know, you'll get, you can run an ad and then see a huge jump in clicks. So you might think, oh, this is great. Like my cost per click is really far, is, is super low and we're getting great traffic. But then you dig into that kind of traffic and then use the, ad as the source and the web engagement the website engagement's terrible you know be 100 percent bounce rate or something like that or whatever it is so like that that can be a sign that there's click fraud going on um yeah i mean i'm not sure of any like great ways to really mitigate it other than improving the targeting of your uh, of your ads but i mean there's i've dealt with this with tons of clients like they'll run Google ads to a landing page and it's just, there's so much spam. So you just gotta be really conscious of how you're targeting and things like that. I mean, there's always, there'll always be like click farms and stuff that'll use a VPN to act like they're from the U S if you're targeting just U S based companies or contacts or something like that. Connor, you're, you're on your own. You're, you're building a business. Uh, what is some mentorship advice that you've gotten recently? I'm in this, I'm in this coaching program right now called client Ascension. and there's seven or so different coaches in there. And I mean, they're, they definitely position themselves as mentors. And I mean, I've just learned, I've learned so much from them. Um, one of the big things I've learned was from the, one of the sales coaches, just really improving my sales calls and how to treat a sales call. Um, like the prospect is not your friend, that type of thing, which is something that I, I fall into a lot of just being like trying to be, trying to be a friend. And I think it's very natural for like marketers to try to do that, but that can very much cloud your, cloud your judgment and um, it'll make for a much less successful sales call. Um, yeah. I'd say that, that that's probably something that sticks out just like, how to how to conduct yourself in sales calls looking like learning more about sales psychology and what are different ways of framing things depending on the person that you're like the type of person that you're talking to um and how to do like response handling and stuff like that it's been a lot of tactical things which is which is really helpful yeah that's that sounds important how is how have you learned sales in your life by doing it (laughs) i think that's i think that's really the only way i mean i didn't I don't even think I took any sales classes like at school. You might have, but um, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, like just being in marketing for a while, you're obviously very close to sales in that. So I've heard a million sales calls, um, whether it was for you know, using it for my own work, right. Using a sales call to build out content strategy or, um, some new segment or some new positioning or something like that, or just overhearing sales calls happen in the other room. Um, but yeah, now that I'm 
now that I'm working on this agency, I, uh, I'm definitely taking sales with a more like hands-on approach. You know, I'm the one doing the sales calls and it's, it's nerve wracking, man. What's the best sales advice you've ever gotten? The prospect is not your friend. Absolutely. It's just like completely changed how I, how I viewed, how I viewed sales and how I go into a sales call. Like, it doesn't mean you need to be a jerk, right? But, uh, like, the goal is just to make a sale and make them your client. It's not to get their phone number and go out and have a drink with them. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think that, like that. I think that's why a lot of good salespeople or just sales in general gets a bad rap because they all kind of come off as jerks. But... I don't know. They they can make a ton of money if you do it well. Yeah, sales very lucrative. Eat what you kill kind of mentality. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm not I'm not great at that. Mm-hmm. But trying to get better. Yeah, I want to get better at that too. Sales is important. Yeah, I think you you'd be good at that. I mean, you're good at you're good at conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Which I think is a, is a pro and a con in a sales call. You know, you could fall into the same pitfalls that I do, where you kind of get distracted and you want to be chummy and stuff like that, but then you lose sight of what the goal is. Yeah, absolutely, chum, yeah. Mister Chum over here. <laughs> Would you recommend somebody start a marketing consultancy in uh, this year, twenty twenty two? Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, don't, don't just be a marketing consultancy, you know, have a niche, make it as specific as possible. Marketing one-on-one, if you're marketing to everyone, then you're marketing to no one. So have a, have a very clear offer for a very specific type of business. Like for me, I do marketing and sales ops for HubSpot customers exclusively. So that obviously narrows down my addressable market, but it gives me immediate credibility when I talk to a business because they're like, Oh, you only do this for people that have this, this technology. So you must really understand this technology. So, um, yeah, I mean the big, the, like the big agencies that are happening right now, like there's, um, you know, like email marketing for e-com is super saturated. Cold email is super saturated. Um, but just be, I mean, if you're just starting out and you see that everyone is doing this thing and you're starting from zero and you haven't done this before, then do that thing. Because just cause it's sat like, because it's saturated, that means it's been proven. You just have to build a brand and sell people on you versus selling people on your actual service. That's interesting. So yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're like just out of college or you dropped out of college or whatever, and you want to start some agency and you don't have a ton of skills, learn cold email, learn email marketing and just pitch it to a specific niche. Like there's this guy, um, there's this guy that, uh, I talked to every now and then on Twitter and he does like email marketing for dentists, you know, like that's exclusively his niche. So he knows how to speak to these people and he knows how to pitch them um, because he, he has that immediate credibility and experience. Another offer that one that's like really on the, like on the rise is 
um, like short form video editing. So, so you say you have like, you know, a, a one hour podcast or something like that, where you have like, it's like you have like long form video or like long form writing that you could turn into video. Like a lot of people are sitting that sitting on that kind of content. And so they need people to, to just edit it down into short form clips because that's, I mean, long form has been the wave for the last seven, eight years, you know, like long form blog posts and, and three hour long podcast videos and stuff like that. But I mean, you look at TikTok, you look at YouTube shorts, even Twitter now has a scrolling video feed. So, uh, short form is definitely the wave right now. That's very interesting. Yeah. What are some other marketing tactics that you that you think are really effective or popular these days? There's some I've been thinking about. I think I I think I posted on LinkedIn or something. Um this isn't so much a marketing tactic as more of like a philosophy. But like more you know, I, I've spent the last five, six years or so like trying to really ingrain myself in the B2B marketing community and looking at all these other people that like really know their stuff and they've been in it for 15 plus years or something like that. And I just think like modern B2B marketers, they get so obsessed with targeting the exact person at the exact time because they have, they're sitting on all this data and they try to use like a combination of the data and their gut and at least as best they can. And like they're just afraid to, there's so many marketers that are just afraid to like talk to people. You know, they're afraid to like get in front of people because they don't want to quote unquote be annoying. But again, another marketing one-on-one lesson, like just repeat the same message to people over and over again, and they cannot help but associate it with you. And so I, I think in terms of something like social, like just post more, like constantly be in the feed, constantly be in front of people. And yeah, you may get some unfollows, you may get some unsubscribes whatever it is, but you will get people to follow and subscribe to you that actually like your stuff. And that's how you build like a, an actual brand that generates revenue is by finding the people that want that like you and want to give you money. And from an organic standpoint, it's just, it's volume. It's just a volume game. What are some other marketing 101 lessons that often go overlooked? like aligning your offer with your target market, right? Like you're just thinking about like, is, is what I'm selling actually going, like, does this actually make sense for these people? So like, like the way that you market to uh, early stage startup is probably not going to be the same as you marketing to like a large enterprise company. You know, you have to understand how your offer fits in. And you could you could probably sell to both of those people, but you can't really speak to them in the same way. So you can't use the same, you can't just copy and paste the same message across all different segments. You got to think critically about what are the pain points of the specific people that I'm trying to target and how does my how does my offer fit within their lives or within what their ideal solution would be so just message messaging alignment offer alignment that type of stuff but it's so easy to miss you know like if you even just like thinking about this type of stuff like talking with you like you and i know this stuff like we we do it 
on autopilot. But it's and one, it's different when it's your, when it's your own thing, right? Like I've definitely edited and re-edited my landing page and my cold emails and stuff like that over and over and over. Cause I'll go back and I'll see that it's not performing well and I'll, I'll read it again or I'll have someone else read it. And they're just like, dude, this doesn't make any sense. Like, why would this person buy this? And you're like, Oh yeah, you're right. So like, even if you've been in the game for a long time, you can still make these mistakes. Um, so it's different when it's your own thing, but also when you're, um, you just, you really just learn it through experience. What are some of the biggest changes in the marketing landscape today that colleges might be behind on? Um, let me see. Um, uh, I mean, you'll find these kinds of programs once you get into like the master's arena. Um, but, uh, I would say like analytics was the first thing that came to mind. And, I think where a lot of a lot of undergrad programs just like don't help you out at all with is like what tools are people actually using? Because if you're right out of college and you know how to use Google Analytics, if like you know how to use Google Analytics, then you're gonna be dangerous, you know. Or you know how to use HubSpot or you know how to use, you know, Google ads or something, like people will hire you. I, I don't think and, and, you know, I've been out of college for a number of years now, but, um, like understanding like what, like tactically, what are marketers working in companies today actually using and what their day-to-day looks like? I just don't think that most undergrad programs have a good grasp on that. Yeah, I agree. I think that marketing is in a period of evolution as it blends with the capabilities of analytics. And it's, uh, it's interesting. It's cool. Yeah, it's funny to it's like I've been thinking about this for a while. Um, like you have just the insane explosion of like influencers and self-made creators and things like that, and now like pretty much everyone has a deeper understanding of marketing just naturally through these activities because the platforms are giving you they give you analytics, right? And so people are understanding. Oh, if I post more, the numbers go up. Or, you know, I can look at the breakdown of my audience and see, oh, I have way more men that are following me. And that's not my goal. I want more women to follow me. Right. So it's 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 forcing people into that kind of mindset that you learn as a marketing student. Um, So sort of like this democratization of marketing of sorts. Um, But I, I mean, I think it's always kind of been like that, like people naturally have it or you'll seek it out or something like that. Um. But yeah, I definitely think like with just like the availability of of data to people that they just have a natural understanding of it. It's the same way of like everyone has an opinion on advertising, you know, because we're surrounded by ads all the time. But you talk to someone who has worked for 20 years in advertising and they'll tell you that, you know, these people don't know anything. So, um, yeah, I think everyone will everyone has an opinion on something that they're exposed to enough. Do you have a favorite advertisement, Connor? Mm. That's a good question. I don't know. Uh, I mean, the one that immediately came to mind, this is such a cop-out, is that um, that Volkswagen lemon ad. <laughs> um, but that's a lame answer. I don't know if I know it. You know it. You know, just look it up right now. You'll know what I'm talking about. Okay. Um, 
It was in a, it was in a Mad Men episode too. Oh, cool. Um, I don't know. I don't know what my favorite ad is. Probably some Super Bowl ad. Do you have a favorite ad? Um, you know, I'm sure the answer will change uh, depending on when you ask me. I have a recent favorite, and mm-hmm. it is the Apple Watch Ultra commercial. <laughs> it is. It's like you you strap on the band and and you're some kind of an Olympian right away. Mm, yeah. yeah, it's very empowering. Very aspirational. Yeah, yeah. I have the feeling that anybody who would actually use it for the survival needs is not going to buy it, and the only people who will buy it are the people who don't need it for those. Yeah, those things. Those. Speaking of like the Apple Watch ads, those ones with like phone calls of people reporting that they're like dying in a forest or they're like drowning in the ocean those are jarring yeah (laughs) and then it's like apple watch like these people survived because of apple and like yeah i get it but to your point i i don't know if that's gonna i don't know if that would sell me on it i think i would i don't know if it would i don't think it would not make me buy it but uh I don't I don't love that kind of association of experience with with a product, but it's definitely emotional, that's for sure. Hunter, what's your least favorite marketing tactic? You know what's you know what's really been annoying me recently? It's been these stupid posts. Uh, I see them on Twitter of like everyone knows like everyone knows WordPress. Here are like seven other website builders that you can use to grow your website and then they're just like tagging the website brands and like giving a very brief description of what they are they just copied and pasted from the company's website it's just a dumb growth hacking thing where it's just like oh my god just enough or like seven 17 productivity apps to make you perform at 300 percent i mean it works because the people who see those and engage with those they have this like deep fear that they're not being productive enough. But in reality, you don't need 17 productivity apps. You need like maybe one, if any, or you just need to like actually be committed to what you're doing. So that's almost an unethical use of advertising. I don't think it's unethical. I mean, it's, I think it's just, you know, it's just posts in the feed, but it's just, uh, you know, it's the same thing of like, you do some posts on LinkedIn and then at the end of it, you're like, I would love to know what you all think. And then you tag like 20 different people that have huge followings in your niche because you think that that's going to get you engagement. Um, like seeing that stuff, I, I don't like seeing those posts. Doesn't rub you the right way. Yeah. And you do it enough times, you, know, you burn out your audience and they're like, okay, I don't want to engage with you anymore. Or like, People will do giveaways on Twitter all the time where they're, they're like retweet and like with a lot with like Hype Fury and with like Tweet Hunter and these other tools, you can do auto DM campaigns. So if people do a certain ac- action, if they take a certain action on your tweet, then you'll automatically DM them like whatever you want. And so I've done a few of them before and they work out all right. But like people will post these things every day. And it's like your followers, your good followers don't want to see that. 
they don't want to see you just giving away stuff constantly for what is clearly engagement baiting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, once, once every other week, a few times a month, something like that is, is good. Talking about cadence like that. Um, you just have to be really conscious with how your, how your content shows up in the feed and how people are interpreting it. Is it something that you would engage with? That's a big question that you should always be asking. Are giveaways a good way to increase engagement and following? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I've seen I've seen giveaway posts like today from people that have like a few hundred followers and it has hundreds of retweets. Right? Which means that it was a good there's a good hook in the tweet. The content's got to be good, right? There's obviously a need there if so many people are are engaging with it. But you know, you're not going to for a lot of these people they want to keep their own timelines clean and stuff like that. So like requiring someone to retweet something will obviously get you the reach that you want, but it's every action that you give them is a greater barrier to them actually doing something. So whenever I do it, I usually just tell people to reply because it's super like low barrier. Um, I mean, with all of these, you have to be following the person in order to receive the auto DM. So, like, you have to make that clear. Um, that that's a big reason why it's a good way to get followers is because these things only work if if you're following the people. But um, yeah, just reduce reduce barriers to entry. Don't clearly just be asking for likes and engagement. Yeah, or do right or just be like hey i'm doing this giveaway because i just want to get a ton of engagement like that kind of brutal honesty also works very well how does a business find its voice on social media um time and repetition i mean if uh if it's a single person business you know that voice is going to be them right if if they're trying to be someone else on there and trying to grow a following or get sales through a voice that's not theirs, they can definitely do that. It's just, it's essentially a time bomb until you get exhausted and can't do that anymore. People will just become naturally burned out from doing something that they, that isn't them. Um, but uh, no, it's just something you kind of find over time. You know, I, I mean, like friendly is always a good place to start, but at the end of the day, you just have to, whatever it is, you just have to make sure you are approachable on the internet. Cause if no one, if no one has any, like, if they don't feel like they can actually DM you or reply or something like that, as if you are a real person, even if you're posting from a brand account, um, if they don't feel that they can do that, then you're never going to reap any of the benefits of having an audience on social. And what is the value of an audience on social? Infinite. Infinite value. Wow. I mean, think about it, right? Like, you have, say you have 100,000 followers and you have a really good engagement rate. Let's say, and let's say you run some like agency, right? You may get some clients from that agency. That's great. You can keep that business going, but you launch like some new thing. And now you have 100,000 people at your disposal that are directly going to know about this. Like the, the value there is just immense. And that, that's just, that's been a big theme for me over the last like year or so is, just thinking about, I mean, this is kind of, this has been in the marketing sphere for a while of 
you know, every B2B company is a media company type of thing, which yes and no, depending on like the business itself and their goals and stuff like that doesn't mean they should like reshape their entire marketing into becoming media based, but um, you got to control the rails. You know, you have to own the distribution to your audience, whether that's building up an email list, building up a social audience, you can't just write it off to Facebook and Google to handle all of your, like to take all of that audience value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to have a, you have to have something of your own. It makes sense. But it takes time. It, you know, organic growth is a long and slow process and trying to scale it out through paid ads. It almost never works. And, or trying to scale out from zero almost never works. Um, and so it's a tough sell for a lot of businesses that need to generate revenue yesterday because they don't want to, they don't want to spend the time doing that kind of stuff when every day they don't do it is just another wasted day. And, um, they just very, I think very few like non-marketers actually understand the value of having an audience. Yeah. I would say most marketers understand the value. Cool. Um, Connor, this has been an amazing conversation. I want to thank you again for coming on. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon.